Ink and Paint wishes to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people, the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded and edited. It is a great privilege to be able to tell stories on this land, which has a tradition of storytelling stretching back over 10,000 years. We also wish to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands from all over the world where our guests record from. We pay our respects to all elders past, present and emerging, and to our First Nations listeners. Ladies and gentlemen, in the near future, there's a Walt Disney picture coming your way called Cinderella. Tonight, we would like to preview some of the highlights from this particular picture with the help of Eileen Woods and the Fontaine sisters. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ink and Paint, a podcast journey through the Disney animated classics. I'm your host, Daniel Lemon. We're exploring one by one the films in the official Disney animated canon and talking about their artistic, historical and social context, where they come from, their impact and how they sit with us now. In our last episode, we completed our look at the wartime era of Disney animation with the fabulous The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. On this episode, we begin our journey into Disney's Silver Age with the enduring romance Cinderella. Before we begin, I just want to take a moment to thank everyone who has been listening in and supporting us on Ink and Paint, and to welcome any new listeners. It really means a lot to us to have you all joining us on this very crazy journey. If you have a moment, we'd love for you to give us a rating or review. This helps others to find us. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at InkPaintPod and find the show notes for each episode at inkandpaint.com.au. Each episode on Ink and Paint, I'm joined by a special guest. Not just film and animation enthusiasts, but people from all different professions. This week, I'm joined by director and actor Katrina Cornwell and playwright Morgan Rose. Kat and Morgan form the artistic team behind Melbourne-based youth theatre company Riot Stage Youth Theatre, whose work include the acclaimed productions F and Lovely Mess. They have also created work together at La Mama, Melbourne Fringe, Poppy Seed Festival, Victorian College of the Arts, and Monash Centre for Theatre and Performance. And Morgan is co-founder of the dramaturgy initiative Lonely Company. Kat and Morgan, welcome to Ink and Paint. Thanks for having us. Hi. For our listeners, just tell us a bit about the kind of work that both of you do, both together, but also you have tremendously exciting artistic careers separately. What is the, what's the kind of work that both of you um, are drawn towards? Well, I think both of us, um, probably together and separately, are really interested in um, true deep collaboration. <laughs> um, and so in any theatre um, project that we undertake, we're looking for that. Um, and I know together, like the processes that we undertake together are like true devised processes where we try to um, assemble a team and that um, has really interesting perspectives and, and really mine the entire team's ideas. Yeah. And um, so we, we use that principle of collaboration and deep devising with young people through Riot Stage, but um, also some projects with adults as well. And th like whatever group we work with, um, I think one of the things that Morgan and I do is we get really fascinated by the people in the room um, and of course also whatever subject matter we're working on. I often find actors playing characters a bit boring for me. 
Um, so <laughs> even when I'm directing, like, uh, uh, I don't know, there's something really predictable about it, so, like often. Um, and so if, even if I'm directing a script which has characters, like I, I really want to find the person, like the actor, I, I still want to see them on stage in some way being like living and breathing the situation. Yeah, it's like, I feel like in theatre, uh, like in training, actors are often told to like erase all their quirks and habits and find this neutral body. And we're really like opposed to that. Like we really enjoy seeing people's habits and quirks and, and little pieces of who they are on stage and using that. Yeah, we're like, be messy. Like, <laughs> be, be your messy self and we'll love you for it. But also it makes, it, it makes them believable and relatable. Like, it's, it's one thing I've never quite understood, this idea of, like, you know, you don't have to kind of pull from something else, like, you know, pull from something outside of yourself. Use what it is that you have with, like, your, your own idiosyncrasies and your own tics and your own tendencies and, like, celebrate your voice and celebrate your body and celebrate the things that, that make you you and use them to build performance or character. Um, yeah, I've never, I, I'm the same, I've never quite understood that tendency. It's so much more uh, human to watch, I think, when you get to see, you don't see someone trying to cover up who they are, don't see someone trying to cover up their humanness. I mean, that must lead very directly into working with young people because, I mean, a, you know, a portion of the work that you do is working with teenagers creating work and building performance around them. How do those principles lead into working with young people? I think maybe that's where the principles came from, don't you, Kat? Yeah, totally, because I think so much of our process working with teenagers is getting them to be comfortable with who they are because we know that, you know, when you're a teenager, for a lot of people it can be just such an awkward phase where everything about you seems wrong. And so I think our process is is about going, like, where you are at in the world right now is perfect and now open up and share it with us and an audience. It's so interesting. When you work with younger kids, they're very free and open and sometimes it's like the, the trick is to get them to, like, focus and calm down. <laughs> um, and with teenagers, it's the opposite. They just, you, it's like, you have to find a way to bring them out. And Kat and I say, like, if you're rehearsing with like a younger kid, you have to give them all your attention and watch them all the time. Um, and that's what they feed off. But with a teenager, you have to kind of pretend you're not watching them. You have to like look the other way and then they'll like perform when they think you're not looking at them. And then you like turn around and you're like that, what you did there. Yeah, we do a lot of um, work uh, creating like exercises and structures for them to exist within that actually takes the pressure off needing to be clever or funny. And then when you do that, they are clever and funny. And I guess also finding like what your common language with them is, because you know I you know work with um, university age students, and it is such it's always so shocking when you realise that they speak a completely different language in terms of their cultural references, their um, political references, their social references. It's like you kind of have to sit there and just go, like, yeah, how do you go about establishing what that language is? Like, how do you connect with who what? the world as through the way they see it. We learn so much from them all the time. They have this experience of the world that like we don't have, you know, that's, that's really, I don't know, interesting and good for like adults to attempt to understand, you know, like it's a really, it's a really, um, it's a, it's, it's a lot of effort, but I think it's an effort that we all should make. It's like where the world's headed and they're, their childhoods and what led them to wherever they are in their lives is totally different than my childhood that led me to like the same age that they were at or that they are at. And so I think Kat and I 
just do a lot of listening, you know, like we, we just try to get them to open up and then we, we just shut up and listen. Yeah. Look, I grew up in a small town. I grew up in Mackay in Queensland. Um, and so we're in Melbourne working with young people that grew up in uh, a metropolitan city and a really political metropolitan city. So these kids are really engaged and they're thinking about the world and they have the internet. So they're thinking about the world in a really global way, which for me is like just so surprising. And I often feel really jealous of them because I'm like, God, look at the look at the city you're in. And, you know, you get to be connected and you're really aware of what's going on and you have an opinion about things. Uh, and I feel like when I was a teenager, I was just like, trying to get through high school yeah i mean it, and it's it's the thing of like the, the the way the the way in that which they speak so articulately about the things that we think about but they because they're teenagers they see them in a very clear way like we often think about teenagers as having like a muddled sense of self and a muddled sense of the world around them but actually they don't they have a very clear moral compass they have a very clear understanding most of them tend to like their their um their values tend to align quite beautifully with one another it's only when you hit get you realize when you get to adulthood that that's when your values start to splinter um it's deeply ins- and that's one thing i love about both of your work is that it's deeply inspiring to to have a forum where i as an adult have to just sit and listen to what teenagers think and feel and realize how important that is how important it is to listen to them they're so smart it's crazy <laughs> I learn. I just learn so much. Like sometimes, if I'm uncertain about an issue, like we bring it up to the kids, and I'm like, they help me figure it out. You know. <laughs> Using the segue of being a teenager and being a child, um, one of the first questions we ask Disney related on this podcast is, do you remember the first Disney animated classic that you saw? I don't remember, but I just know they were so like Disney was so uh, entwined in my childhood. Probably the first one I saw was before I have before I have memory, you know? Yeah, definitely. And it would have been on um, VHS. I have a memory of those things. Like I remember looking at them with, and like the little bright pictures on them when they were like for kids. But wait, when we were little, didn't they like occasionally like release the animated ones in the theaters? I think that maybe that was just in the US. I don't know. They did. Um, When we were, when we would have been little, um, would have been the last time that happened before VHS really kicked off. So in the the last, the last round, because they had a process of every seven years, they would re-release the big classics. Um, And the last round of that properly happened in the early 90s. So I remember, like, I have memories of seeing Peter Pan and The Jungle Book and Snow White in particular um, at the cinema, as well as seeing them all on VHS. Morgan, you were saying that Disney was quite quite a big part of, like, ingrained into your childhood. In what capacity was that the case? And then, Kat, for you, was it was it similar? I mean, I do know that whenever they released them in the theatres, that we would go and see it. And um, we didn't really have, like, uh, I di- we didn't have a a VCR until I was like much older. So I wasn't watching them at home. We would, I would have to wait until it came into the theater. So that was kind of a big deal. And yeah, I mean, I think I was just like, I was like a really girly kid. And so I was like really into all the princesses and like, just kind of obsessed with like the frilly dresses and all of that, (laughs) the part of that whole part of Disney. I, I loved it. Um, yeah, and and of course, like 
always wanted, cause I was in the U S so like you could go to Disney world or Disneyland. And I always wanted that so bad, but I never, I still haven't been, I've never been, but I was like, when I was little, I was pining for it. <laughs> I've been to Disneyland. How have you been? What? When I was in America on tour, we had, we had a day off and we went to Disneyland, I think outside of LA. Um, and I just remember everyone, cause I, I was touring with some other performers. There was, there was a group of five of us. And everyone was so cranky that day, like so mad at each other. How can you be cranky at (laughs) Disneyland? Like I thought that that was the whole point, that it is like specifically designed to prevent you from ever, I mean, I've never been there either, but it's it's designed specifically that you will never, ever be angry or upset while you're there. Like it's aesthetically built for that. (laughs) No, but have you experienced the lines? It was just a process of waiting in lines with a group of people. And I think half of the group was like, coming down off something from the night before. <laughs> that is not a place to come down from something. Yeah. Disneyland is not a place no. for that. No, it was actually like a pretty dark day for us. <laughs> <laughs> um, back to your question about uh, childhood, I remember watching it on VHS. I don't think we ever went to the cinema. And as I was re-watching Cinderella in preparation for this, I kept Uh, being surprised that it wasn't more familiar to me. And then I remembered the movie that I loved was Sleeping Beauty. And I remember seeing the Make It Pink, Make It Blue. I remember like my family used to have like a little joke about that. Like we'd say it to each other and pretend to be casting spells. So that's the one that I think that I was obsessed with. Has Disney then had an impact on either of you growing up or like into adulthood and then into your creative work? I feel like I lost my uh, connection to Disney as I got older, like I, I didn't, I haven't really watched the movies as an adult. Um, like I kind of stopped, Kat really likes cartoons, but I, I actually do. I love stupid cartoon movies. I'm that cliche of a person that will watch them on planes and cry to myself. Like what? Like what, like what cartoon movies? What are you talking What, which ones? Like, uh, Toy Story, um, oh, what was the one? Is it Inside Out? Yeah, Inside Out. Yeah. Inside Out's a masterpiece. Bloody hell, that's a good movie. Um, yeah, the Pixar ones. Yeah, I don't really like cartoons. Like, even, like, like as an adult, I, I mean, I loved them as a child. Like, I would just watch cartoon. cartoon I mean, I've always, like, liked um, film and television, you know, but I, 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 I and I, when I was younger, it was all about cartoons on film and television. But um, as I got older, I kind of, yeah that part of me changed. Um, and so even the like really good, like, well, um, cartoons that are aimed at adults, you know, I just, I don't know. I, I don't know why I just don't vibe with them as a, an adult. Do you feel manipulated by those, by that genre? I think I feel a little bit bored. I think I like seeing people. Like I like seeing like, you know, like a human face that's like having all the feelings behind it you know and not yeah it's hard to it's hard to root for a talking car sometimes <laughs> <laughs> yes it's very hard to root for a to- particularly those talking cars it's very hard to root for them <laughs> when the second world war came to an end walt disney was ready to return to feature animation there were a number of potential projects that had slowly continued development, such as Alice in Wonderland and The Wind in the Willows, but Roy Disney was adamant. The studio was still $4 million in debt and not in the financial shape to handle the scale of a fully animated feature film, especially with the inconsistent box office success. 
By the end of 1940 though, Walt Disney Productions was losing its stature as the preeminent animation studio in America, and Walt needed to assert his dominance with a triumph on the scale of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. He chose a project that returned to the formula of that gargantuan success, but filtered through their new style, developed out of economic necessity. The gamble would be enormous, perhaps the biggest of his life so far, and the fate of a studio that had risen from rags to riches and fallen back to rags again would rest on the greatest rags to riches story of them all. Cinderella lives as a servant with her evil stepmother, Lady Tremaine, and her wicked stepsisters, Anastasia and Drizella. When a ball is announced in honour of the prince, Cinderella hopes to be able to go, but her stepmother makes such a dream impossible. Heartbroken, Cinderella is visited by her fairy godmother, who makes her wish come true, but warns her that she must be home by midnight when the spell is broken. At the ball, Cinderella dances with a handsome young man and falls instantly in love but doesn't notice the approach to midnight, and in her flight from the ball, leaves behind one of her glass slippers. A royal decree commands every maid in the kingdom to try on the slipper to find the mysterious girl who danced with the young man, who turns out to be the prince. Realizing Cinderella's secret, Lady Tremaine locks her away to prevent her from trying the slipper on, but freed by an intrepid troop of friendly mice, Cinderella puts on the slipper, is reunited with the prince, and lives happily ever after. The story of Cinderella is one of the oldest folk tales and has different variations from cultures all over the world dating back as far as ancient Greece. While published by a number of folklorists over time, including the Brothers Grimm, the most popular version is that by French writer Charles Perrault in 1697, which introduces the pumpkin, the fairy godmother and the glass slippers to the story. It is one of the most well-known and beloved of the traditional fairy tales, adapted hundreds of times over all forms of art and storytelling. Walt Disney's relationship with the story dates back to 1922, when it was adapted for one of the Laughogram shorts. He returned to the story in 1933 for a potential silly symphony, and though that version was shelved, he had first put out a call-out to staff for gags that might work for the story, some of which would find their way into the final feature film. In the giddy days following the success of Snow White, he returned to the story for development into a feature film. The treatment was written by Al Perkins, and over the next 12 years, the project would go through many variations, including characters and scenarios that would later be cut. After the war, with Roy against the idea of feature films, the two brothers descended into a screaming match. Walt delivered an ultimatum to Roy. Find the money for feature animation, or sell off the company. Roy did as his brother asked, but once again began to worry that Walt's recklessness would lead them back towards trouble. When Walt decided to make the push for feature animation in 1946, he proposed two potential projects to the staff, the long-in-development Alice in Wonderland or the embryonic Cinderella. Despite Alice being further along, they decided to go with Cinderella, though Alice would continue to be developed alongside it. A new treatment was written in 1946 by Ted Sears, Homer Brightman and Harry Reeves, and a release date planned for 1949. By returning to the fairy tale mould of Snow White, Walt hoped to replicate that success critically and commercially. There was no way though that they could lavish the same resources and attention to detail on Cinderella, so a new approach was needed. 
Cinderella would see the artists in every department at Walt Disney Productions put the cost-effective skills they had developed during the wartime era to the ultimate test, to see if they were still capable of creating an instant classic under severe artistic constraints. The pressure was on, and not just to make the best film they could. Walt was not being coy about what was at stake. If Cinderella proved yet another box office failure, Walt Disney Productions would cease to exist. Now, before we get into the film itself, um, another strain of your work, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to chat to the two of you about this, is a, quite a few of your works in the last few years have explored the genre of romance, um, whether that be on television or film or literature. What, why are you drawn to exploring those narratives, and why do you think we are all drawn to those kinds of narratives, like narratives like Cinderella? I guess what, this is what I want to say. Um, the thing that people need to know is that Morgan and I are queer and together. Um, so we made a work a couple of years ago called um, The Bachelor Season 17, Episode 5, uh, which was using a verbatim episode of The Bachelor and putting it live on stage. Um, and one of the things that Morgan and I commented on as we watched Cinderella last night was that, like, that scene when they're in the ballroom and all of the girls just walk straight up to him and he's kind of like, yeah, nah. Yeah, no, nah. like, like, and judging all of them really quickly. Morgan was like, "This is the original Bachelor," and Cinderella gets the first impression, Rose. <laughs> yes, it totally is that, including the fact that he has no personality whatsoever, <laughs> which was also very much like the Bachelor. And the girls are all dressed alike, and they all like, yeah, parade down a little carpet and say hi. <laughs> but yeah, and that really the formalness of it as well. Like for the rose ceremonies on The Bachelor, they all kind of have their floor-length ball gown, and if you do anything different from that, you're like the quirky one. And that like they, they try to make the space as elegant as possible. They're like it. It's like the parallels are actually quite striking with that scene and the rose ceremony of The Bachelor. I mean, I think that The Bachelor is purposefully like um, drawing from Cinderella, you know? Like I think they probably have consciously been like, oh, it's like a Cinderella story every season, you know? That That's a, that's a, a phrase you hear a lot with romantic films is the concept of a Cinderella story, which I guess makes a certain degree of sense because, I mean, this is a story that's existed for thousands of years across every single culture and has gone through many, many different versions. And so it's it's kind of easily adaptable to different forms. So you can have things like Ever After and you can have things like the Hilary Duff Cinderella story. Um, or you can have Pretty Pretty Woman. Um, it's kind of, it fulfills a lot of those archetypes. Both of you, when you were making The Bachelor, I remember talking to you both and you were both very open about, yeah, we watch, we, we're fast, we watch these things. We love watching these things. Why? Why do you think we love watching romance enacted before us in a artificial quote-unquote artificial setting it's such i mean it's an amazing question because i don't know the answer like and and i think that's why we kat and i are obsessed with this and why we keep making work about it and the work like we always say the question that this work is examining is why are we into this why and like especially me and kat who don't have any like personal relationship to like these really hetero kind of sappy romance like setups that just don't apply to our lives. Like why 
why have I seen every season of The Bachelor? I don't, I don't know. Why? I know. Like, I think, I don't think I would watch The Bachelor if the romance wasn't such a part of it. Like, it needs that narrative for it to be a satisfying watch. Like, I've watched spinoffs of The Bachelor with, like, Bachelor in Paradise, and it's more bitchy and catty and people do get together, but it's less romantic and more kind of real world. Uh, and it feels a bit, like, it's not as entertaining and it feels a bit gross. And after a while I get sick of it and stop watching it. Um, but with The Bachelor, it's that, I don't know, that it's that journey. And um, the thing that I was thinking about after I watched Cinderella was, like, it for me it's about hope and it's this idea of being seen to be as special as you think you are like there's a narrative of that that's embedded in definitely the Cinderella story and maybe in a lot of other fairy tales as well I mean it's definitely there in stories like Snow White um in like the ideal in that it's also partly I think in the original um the original source of story of Beauty and the Beast like I I, I I agree with your point of like you know the thing of like would you watch it if there wasn't a romantic element I mean like I remember having this argument with, with my dad when I was a teenager, because one of my favorite films is Titanic. And I like I love it, but I also have been obsessed with that particular historical event since I was a little kid. It just happened to be that I became interested in it around the same time the film came out. And he said to me, the film, he said, I don't like the James Cameron film because it's disrespectful that they put this fake romance into the film when it's about an historical event. And my argument back to him was, I've seen so many films on the Titanic and there were, some of them are pretty good, but none of them made me have made me cry. And I think, and the reason is because we need that romance in order to connect with the characters and connect with the event. It's the same with like Casablanca. You know, the the the, the Second World War is happening in the background of Casablanca, but what you connect with is Rick and Ilse's romance. Um, that it becomes it's like a doorway that we can kind of enter into these people's lives because. Maybe it's maybe it's just that they're fundamental things that all of us have. Like we all have these desire for a connection with another person, and that the connection with another person person is kind of like, you know, it's like um, the line in "So This Is Love" in Cinderella. Um, so this is the miracle that I've been dreaming of. Like that song, so much about them seeing each other and it being a com- like two pieces clicking together. Maybe it's got something to do with that. Yes, and it's this idea that the other person whoever that is, kind of completes you or fills, you know, that that part of us that's searching or or wanting for something else. Well, and just I think like drama in general is about big emotions and that's like one of the big emotions is love, you know. (laughs) It's like you fall in love or you're really sad because someone died. Like those are the things we make stories about, (laughs) right? Like death, (laughs) love. Yeah, Titanic's got both of them. And so does most Disney films actually have those two things. Like they, they, they are, if they're not explicitly talking about death, they're like subconsciously talking about it. Which brings me to, to bring it back to, to talking about Cinderella. Um, do you remember the first time that you saw Cinderella? Like, do you remember, like, had you seen it before you saw it yet um, in prep for this? I really, I don't remember the first time, but I know the whole movie. Like when I watched it last night, I haven't seen it in more than a decade, I'm sure. And I just knew every every frame I was like yep seen that before oh next they're gonna like have to put the like I just remember the mice like pull it taking the key up the big stairs like I just know every frame of that scene you know so I've definitely consumed it many 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 times as a child (laughs) look it wasn't that familiar for me I've definitely watched it 
Um, but it, it didn't, it wasn't like ringing off alarm bells in my head. And what did you make of it revisiting it? What, what did you make of it coming to it now as adults? I really enjoyed the like nostalgia of it. Like, as I said, I'm not a big cartoon person. So I was like, oh, this might be kind of boring, but whatever. But like, I really, like, I really enjoyed watching it because I just connected with that, like kind of memory of being a kid and being really like, uh, really into it, which was, which was good because I think otherwise I would have just like had my like cynical like lens on like what a load of crap blah 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 it's an easy film to be cynical about like i love it but it's also like it's an easy film to kind of pick apart and be like "Eh," about as well totally totally and we did some of that but i felt like i also was able to like enjoy it in this really like childlike way which was good i found myself really drawn to thinking about like the art making of it which i think is like indicative of being an adult and now also being a director and theater maker Uh, And I was like, oh, wow, this is actually really creative and really well done. And some of the shots are really filmic. And the depiction of the facial expressions were really good. Yeah, particularly around the stepmother, around Lady Tremaine. Yeah, like she, that's exactly what I was thinking. The stepmother, she's amazing. I think I would probably say I think she's maybe the best Disney villain. Like in terms of just, there's nothing complicated about her approach. She just hates Cinderella. And what she does, and, and her actions are for the absolute utmost cruelty. It's not for her gain. It's not like most of the other Disney villains are doing something in order to get something for themselves. She's not doing anything to get something for herself. She doesn't even like her step, her own daughters. She doesn't like the step daughters um she finds you can tell she finds them annoying she just wants to cause pain and inflict cruelty on this young woman she's just a sociopath like actually yeah yeah absolutely which makes her the most frightening because you just don't like when she locks cinderella up at the end the thing that's most frightening is not that she's locked her up it's the smile on her face and how beautifully that's realized in the animation that it like it's so visceral it really is yeah Yeah, you just hate her. You get so angry. In 1944, RKO Pictures reissued Snow White for the first time. And while the recent Disney features had barely made a profit, the one that started it all once again proved a box office success. This must have weighed on Walt's mind when he restarted development on Cinderella two years later. The most consistent criticism of all their post-1937 films was that they weren't like Snow White. So for the first time, he would give the public what they wanted. Cinderella went through many changes during story development, with ideas and characters explored for years before being dropped altogether. In the early stages, the role of the prince was expanded to give him more to do and provide the film with more action. But over time, possibly because male characters still proved difficult to animate, his role was reduced to almost nothing. The main focus for the story team was to properly develop the animal characters that lived in the house with Cinderella. The animals were very important to the story, said animator Ollie Johnson in 1995, because Cinderella could play off the animals and show her true feelings. That's the type of character relationship that Walt wanted. Over time, the mice took a greater role and became a subplot in the film. Determined to help Cinderella despite the presence of Lady Tremaine's maniacal cat, Lucifer. Walt was very careful, though, not to burden the film with too many gags. We have to pull a lot of gags that are in just as gags, he said in a story meeting. There's a time where you can gag a thing, and times when you have to carry a certain amount of feeling if you want the story to hold. The influence of Snow White on Cinderella is very clear in the storytelling, particularly in its episodic structure and economic narrative. 
But it was also clear that the film could not look like Snow White. A different visual approach was needed, one that would bring the magic audiences expected without costing anywhere near as much. Walt decided this would be the perfect opportunity to further elevate his favourite artist at the studio, Mary Blair, whose work in the 40s had begun to move Disney animation in a different direction in terms of texture and colour. When Walt decided to make Cinderella, remembered supervising director Ben Sharpstein in 1974, he looked for practical ways to style it so it would not be reminiscent of Snow White. He wanted to plus each picture, he wanted to make every picture better than the last. He was extremely anxious to get Mary Blair's natural talents into the character of Cinderella herself. Mary was given every opportunity to contribute in any way she wished. The problem was that Mary Blair's style was not easy to replicate, especially rendering her two-dimensional use of shape and texture into three-dimensional characters. The animators tried their best, but with mixed results. This struggle would become one of the defining conflicts within Disney animation in the 1950s, and lead to unexpected and dangerous consequences. Another controversial decision put further pressure on the animators. Live-action reference had been a feature of the process since Snow White, but in 1948, Walt ordered that the entirety of Cinderella should be shot in live-action for reference, not just for the animation, but for editing, timing, and story structure. Actors moved across minimal sets, mouthing along with the pre-recorded track. The footage was then edited and refined for pacing, and then frames printed on large photostats for the animators. This was to save time and money in the rough animation stage, but the animators found it extremely limiting. The free reign of expression they had enjoyed was being restricted, and they had even been told to stick to static, head-on shots and angles rather than anything complex. If the live action was good, well, I used it, and if it wasn't, I didn't use it, and, 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 and I'd use the best parts of it, and I'd, I'd, I'd use it to help me enhance something, you know? But uh, I still didn't like to use it. Both Eric Larson and Mark Davis were put in charge of animating Cinderella, but the two men had very different ideas of who she was. Larson saw her as down-to-earth and grounded, while Davis gave her an air of sophistication, and it was up to the in-betweeners to reconcile the two. Larson gave credit to the strength of dancer Helene Stanley's performance in the reference footage, acknowledging that she understood the medium like few people did and was a great inspiration. The key moment of Cinderella's transformation for the ball was animated by Davis, and the sequence is now considered a masterpiece. Frank Thomas was given the unexpected task of animating Lady Tremaine. He had made his name on characters such as Pinocchio, Bambi and the Seven Dwarves, so he initially seemed an odd pairing for the terrifying villain. He worked with Ollie Johnson to complete the household, with Johnson animating the two stepsisters. No one had more fun though than Ward Kimball, who was handling the mice and Lucifer the cat, which he modelled on his own. Kimball had demonstrated tremendous skill with his madcap and witty work on the three caballeros, and he poured this same wit into Cinderella, his comic style a perfect complement to the classic animation of Larson, Davis and Thomas. He also collaborated with Wolfgang Reitherman, their finest action director, on the thrilling key sequence in the third act. The casting also freed Kimball of having to deal with the live action reference. Ward Kimball had the luckiest role because the rest of us were sweating under all these restrictions of the live action we'd shot. They didn't shoot live action for him. <laughs> to kind of move into talking about Cinderella, as a romantic lead or as like, you know, the protagonist of this story, how does she fare? I mean, 
compared to like you know is she a workable character does she work as a, as a romantic lead uh i mean I, she does in like a really traditional sense and like it, as a kid i was like oh i want to be her you know like she likes animals the animals like her she's pretty in a really traditional way like she can sing really great but i find her watching her as an adult i was just kind of uh i don't know she's kind of empty yeah, she's got that kind of blank hero factor where they're a bit neutral so that you can project yourself onto them. <laughs> yeah. We were reading in your notes and it said there was that argument about uh, whether she should be this, like, really graceful, uh, elegant, sophisticate, or if she should be a little more earthy and... Um, grounded. Yeah, grounded. And I feel like they went the wrong way. Like, I feel like earthy and grounded would have made more sense and been more interesting. Yeah, but people want something aspirational. Mm. Like, I'm sure that kids would respond better to this version. And I think that the backstory of her um, her, and then her relationship to her dad and then the stepmother comes in and the, then the dad dies um, lets you know that she wasn't always in this position of submission. So having these little quips feels right. And, like, I also think it's a product of the time it was – it feels – so 50s right like it's like one of those movies where uh it's like dirty dancing where it's supposed to be set in the 60s but it feels so 80s because it was made in the 80s <laughs> like you can just really feel uh yeah the, the time period this is a slightly complicated question and okay, i guess it's not a particularly nice question but i mean you brought up the fact of like she's a character that's put in a position of submission how prevalent in the work like in you're looking into um romantic films or romantic narratives how important and quote unquote is that role of the submissive woman in that narrative how prevalent is it in that narrative I mean it's pretty much always there like it's like that's one of the things that we really uh have been investigating in our work um is how pervasive that is and how damaging it is and how it uh is self-perpetuating for another work we did that used kind of um, a grand gesture, which used uh, verbatim scripts from like romantic comedies, um, and we staged those, we did a lot of research into how this narrative that, um, you know, the woman is is meek and the man like saves her and, and showers gifts upon her and all of that that we see over and over in films how that actually has real life repercussions of abuse and um abuse victims in real life can can cite that narrative as a reason they stay with abusive partners yeah like the person that did research um did a lot of interviews um with victims of um relationship abuse and violence that narrative of Prince Charming, they actually called it Prince Charming in this um, research study that we're referring to, uh, that narrative made them stay with the guy, basically, because he would come back in with roses and that would that action would make it all better, which is just shocking that that's, that, that narrative is so ingrained that they can't, they can't imagine a story where they exist in a different position to a male. Well, yeah, because they, they've seen the the woman be this, like, submissive, hurt thing just since, like, as I said, the, I can't even remember the first time I saw Cinderella. 
I was too young to have a memory. And so there, you know, so many women are the same. It's just been fed to them since before they could speak. And I mean, Cinderella, even though the the abuse is not coming from a traditionally, like, a traditional male figure, but there are certainly, like, signifiers in the way that Lady Tremaine is designed of, like, she's tall, she has broad shoulders, she has an imposing figure. She kind of represents, um, like, she has male signifiers in, in, the, in her design. I mean... Cinderella is also as much as it's a romance it is a depiction of a, of a, of abuse like of Cinderella like watching it today the moment that really struck me was the moment where Cinderella where she, her dress is torn like I've seen that film so many times but that is it's so insanely violent emotionally and physically to the point where she realizes like you know she goes and runs into the garden she goes it's no use it's no use what are use of dreams they're no use it's, nothing's going to happen and I remember just watching and thinking why don't you run away why do you think that you don't have any other option? But of course she doesn't because the world that she exists in tells her this is where she's supposed to be and this is how she's supposed to live. Yeah, and it tells her how she's supposed to react to that situation as well, which is not to stand up for herself but to accept what's happened and accept her fate. Totally, and that's part of the reason she's like a, uh, a beautiful character, an interesting person, a, a lovely young girl is because she's sweet and, and doesn't get overly mad at this you know she doesn't fight back she's like the good girl and that's supposed to be a um appealing quality you know that's why the prince likes her because she's so she's so sweet and beautiful and doesn't say a word i mean it's that it's you know obviously we, the, the prince doesn't say a word either the only thing he says is i think uh are you going like what there's one line you know what it is daniel i, I can't it's something along those lines it's like yeah or like he said yeah i think he has two or three lines where he go where he says like don't leave or something um i mean there's a there's a there's a technical reason why he doesn't say anything which is that they like by 1950 1949 1950 they'd finally worked out how to animate a something resembling a, a realistic female face, but they could not work out how the fuck to do a man. They just did not know how to. So that's the reason he doesn't say anything is because they're like, we don't know how to do this. Oh my God. So let's just not have him. Because originally in early versions of the story, he was a much bigger character. Like he was one of the driving forces of the narrative. And so it isn't really until Sleeping Beauty where they can finally start to have a prince that actually wow. has a personality because Philip has a little bit of a personality. And so did they shift, like, um, the, the the motivation for the prince onto the dad and made him kind of more cartoony for that reason? Yep, that would have been the reason to go. We can't we can't get have the prince be active in the narrative because we can't animate him, but we can caricature the king and the grand duke. That means that we can then put that... So it becomes... The grand duke becomes the person who goes and finds... Cinderella with the, with the slipper, he becomes the more, the active male. They become the active male presence in the film, as opposed to the prince who just stands there and looks bored. And you know what's interesting is that um, Prince Charming's father is also very violent. Literally threatens the duke with violence. Which I guess is like it comes down to like the thing of the like it, it in a way violence is used to up the stakes in this story. I mean, it, it happens in a lot of the early Disney films that violence is used to establish the stakes, but. It's probably kind of more surprising in this one because so much of it is this fairy tale. Like, it's such a candy-coloured fairy tale at the moment. Like, that moment where um, Grisella and Anastasia attack Cinderella is, you know, very shocking. Not even just, like, the violence that's enacted between Lucifer and the mice. There's always this... There's a constant threat in the film of safety and personal safety and like physical safety and then emotional safety with the way that they abuse Cinderella. 
I hereby dub you, sir. Um, uh, by the way, what title would you like? Sire, she got away. So she got away. A peculiar title, but if that's what you... She what? Why, you... You... You traitor! No, sire, remember, you, you, you blood pressure! Treason! After the war, and still in debt, the studio was forced to engage in a significant company restructure, including Walt stepping down as president to be chairman of the board, and in 1946, another round of debilitating layoffs that further impacted the morale of the staff. The company was also diversifying, moving into live-action filmmaking, education films, and the package films, in order to generate more income. To assist with maintaining quality control over their animated films, Walt established an animation board, whose members were personally selected by Walt and would advise him on projects, devising policies and processes for future films, and overseeing the development of other animators. He chose from the best of his animation staff, men who had been with the studio since the days of Snow White. Les Clark, Mark Davis, Ollie Johnson, Milt Cole, Ward Kimball, Eric Larson, John Lounsbury, Wolfgang Reitherman, and Frank Thomas. As a term of affection, he dubbed them his Nine Old Men, borrowing President Franklin D. Roosevelt's nickname for the nine members of his Supreme Court. I think the fact that the Depression happened and Walt kind of pulled them all together was really this amazing moment in history that all these guys came together and they weren't just these kind of hobbyists that drew things on the you know back of their notebooks and stuff. They were you know, men, sophisticated people who had world interests and they brought all that to their work and I think that's why their work is so lasting. The nine old men would become the primary artistic force in the animation department for the next three decades. Each had incredible skills in their own right, but together they would come to define the classic Disney style, as well as train and nurture the animators that would follow them, not only at Walt Disney Animation, but all the major animation studios in the United States. The Silver Age represents the nine old men at the height of their creative powers. Over the next nine episodes, we're going to look at each of the nine old men and look at their individual contributions to the art of animation. In this episode, we begin with one of the great Disney draftsmen, Mark Davis. Mark Davis was born on March 30th, 1913 in Bakersfield, California, the only child to Jewish parents, Harry and Milford Davis. Harry Davis worked in oil field development, and as a result, the Davises were forced to move often, with Mark attending 26 different schools before reaching high school. He was bullied constantly as a child, but found that one way to escape the attention of bullies was to impress them with his drawing skills, and once he had finished high school, went on to further art studies in Kansas, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. His main interest was in animals, and he devoted hours after classes to improving his understanding of animal anatomy. Davis joined the Disney studio in 1935, during the making of Snow White, and began work as an apprentice animator. He made remarkable contributions to Bambi, Song of the South, and The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, but it was in the Silver Age where Davis established himself as a legend of the form, thanks to his incredible skill at drawing female characters, something that no one else had been able to perfect. When you look at that face on the screen and the whole face works together, when you smile, the eyes smile, the mouth smiles, your ears even move. This is something when we do it right, the whole thing lights up and it's 
like a magic lantern. You see this face and it's living. As well as Cinderella, Davis will be responsible for every major female character in a Disney animated film in the Silver Age, each a greater triumph than the last. Alice, Tinkerbell, Aurora, Maleficent, and Cruella de Vil. His incredible draftsmanship and understanding of anatomy had solved the riddle that had plagued the early films, and as a result, the female characters of this period are more expressive, more complex, and more abundant than during the 30s and 40s. As well as his contribution to animation, Davis was also one of the original Imagineers, poached by Walt as part of the development team for what became Disneyland. Davis would design characters and animatronics for some of the most iconic Disneyland attractions, including the Jungle Cruise, It's a Small World, and the Haunted Mansion. He also lectured at the Chouinard Art Institute, where he met his wife Alice in 1947. Davis's contribution to the art of animation was widely praised in his lifetime, being inducted as a Disney legend in 1989 and lending his name to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences annual Mark Davis Lecture on Animation, which began in 1994 and features lectures from top artists of the industry. He passed away on January 12, 2000, after which the California Institute of the Arts established a scholarship in his name. His work on the character of Cinderella is remarkable, especially when you consider the limitations of Snow White less than 15 years before. But it is even more remarkable to consider the work that was to come. After a strong male focus for the first decade or so of features, the next 10 years would see a significant rise in female protagonists. And much of that must be attributed to the confident, inspiring work of Mark Davis. There's a trope in the film of women in a state of conflict with each other, kind of bouncing off the thing of the submissive woman as a feature of romantic stories and romantic narratives. How much is that a prevalent narrative in romance, of the idea of women in conflict with one another? I think it's just as common as as every trope we've discussed so far, like, and it's something, like, if you look at The Bachelor. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, like, because essentially that's the setup of this film is women in conflict with one another for the heart of a man. You really see it with the sisters as mostly, I think. Like, they're very cruel with each other. I think it's something that people find pleasure in watching. Like, for instance, I think that on, I don't think that women being bitchy with each other and fighting over a man is as common in real life as it is on screen. And I think that uh, The Bachelor purposefully tries to create conflict. Because lots of times you'll watch, this is so obvious that I watch The Bachelor too much, but like um, if you watch the beginning, uh, you know, the first, the first um, episode, it's like the women are trying really hard to be nice to each other and they are all trying to get along. And then... there's at some point something takes a turn and you can just see like the producers manipulating things like finding someone who's just really like uh, outspoken and putting them into the mix or whispering things into people's ears or or setting up dates that purposefully like create uh conflict like they're trying to make the women fight each other and dislike each other and you can see the the real people in the show 
trying not to fall victim to that, right? They try to stay nice, but then they just, they, they can't, they can't fight that force. Um, and so eventually, you know, there, there becomes a villain and then like some petty squabble. And I don't think that that naturally happens as much as um, TV and film likes to present it to us. Totally. In fact, when I watch The Bachelor, I'm often surprised that some of them don't, like they don't fight more. Like they are literally all dating the same guy, but these women make, like a lot of them, most of the contestants make peace with that and come onto the show and conduct themselves very well. And become really good friends with each other. Yeah, they're they're like, I love Taylor. She's really sweet. And they're like, some of most of the time, they're really lovely to each other. And they get sad when one of them gets kicked off. They're like, no, don't go. And it's like, well, that means you're closer to having the dude. But they really like love each other and like feel like they're in it together in some way. I just wanted to say on this topic that um, as Morgan was speaking, I had a realization of one of the ways I think that this narrative has certainly affected me and I'll bet other people. And it's connected to this idea of women. Um, being at odds with each other, especially over a guy, is that I am a very competitive person, a deeply competitive person. And like I have for as long as I can remember always sized myself up against other women. And I think that is one of the byproducts of of this narrative. Because, I mean, the, the thing that what you have in this story is women it, what 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 are the things that we value women for? I mean, and you know what what you know Cinderella presents. She's got a beautiful singing voice. She's very pretty. She's humble. She's gra- like she's gracious. And then you have, as a point of com- comparison, you have Drizella and Anastasia. This is the first time in a Disney film that you see women in conflict with one another actively. That isn't like the the evil stepmother and Snow White in um. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which is again, you know, a, a relationship built out of a value system, um, and in that particular instance, a value system defined by a male presence, which is the um, the magic mirror. In this, the 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 value system is actually them themselves comparing each other, not like through obviously through a male lens, through what they're expected of what the prince will like, but. It's not a case of um, being told that th- by being told by some outside party what their values are. It's them throwing the values at one another, which in some ways feels a lot more vicious um, and damaging. But you know, like it's clearly damaging to Cinderella, but it's also damaging to the two sisters because they have they also have no concept of their self worth. Their self worth is defined by what their mother tells them um, their self worth is and what it is in comparison to Snow- to Cinderella. I guess it sets up like there's. There's only one Cinderella. Only one person gets the prince. Only, you know, there's only one most beautiful, like, sweet person, you know? It really does, like, put... It is a competition, you know? It is a competition for the prince, and there's a winner and losers. And the stepmother as well. It's a competition for the stepmother as well. Yeah. I find those sisters really interesting characters because they're depicted in quite a realistic way. Like, their faces aren't as cartoony as, say, the king and the duke. Um, But we're not meant to like them at all. But they're not quite villains because they're also victims. And they're children. They're so childlike. And I feel sorry for them. And I think I felt sorry for them as children as well. Like, I was like, well, what happens to them? Then they have to live with this horrible person for the rest of their lives. It's Because I read both the the Charles Perrault 
fairy tale which the film is directly based off. But I also read the uh, the Brothers Grimm version of Cinderella as well. And that's actually a feature of Perot's story is that the stepsisters are not as unsympathetic. One of them has a better relationship with Cinderella and at the end Cinderella forgives them and sets them up for a better life. While in the in the Grimm's version, they're horrid and, you know, one hacks her toes off and one hacks her heels off and they have their eyes pecked out at the end. And in the end, actually, the story becomes less about the morals we learn from Cinderella's actions and more the morals we learn from the stepsister's actions. Um, but it is like, yeah, you do, you can't completely hate them because you can see that somebody else is orchestrating the, the cruelty they inflict on Cinderella is being orchestrated by somebody else. And again, you don't really understand, you know, what Lady Tremaine's problem with Cinderella is other than I just don't like you. I don't like that you are, I don't like what you represent. I don't like, you know, the attention you had from your father. And I don't like what, I don't like how your, val- I don't like how your value system is in conflict with mine. Maybe that's her reason. And I think it's this trope of like the old crone, you know, who's jealous of the young woman that you, I think you see it in multiple Disney movies. Well, she's kind of, she's distinct in that she's the one, she's not elegant. The queen in Snow White is is beautiful. Maleficent is stunning, like has this incredible silhouette. But Lady Tremaine, in terms of those classic princess stepmother conflicts, um, or, or mother figure conflicts. Um, this is the only one that doesn't have. She has um, elegance and she has standing, but she doesn't have that sense of like grace and beauty. She doesn't have. Um, she doesn't have the the attributes that we assert. Like she, her attributes are not in conflict with Cinderella because they're similar. They're in conflict with Cinderella because they're the opposite. I don't know about that. I think that she's quite graceful. You know, she's very put together. I think that she would think of herself as graceful. She certainly tries to be, and she a number of times talks about, um, what is it, control at all times, like controlling your emotions, being put together, being presentable at all times. So certainly she has an awareness of it. And I'd be interested to know if, um, like in the Disney films, if these these older evil women are all kind of um, like, you know, skinny-ish or, or like have these figures because she's like she had a pretty good figure um, and then the other representation of older women that we see are these like kind of grandmother figures like the fairy godmother who are very like charming and dumpy and dithering and they're the two opposites that we get. Actually, you're completely right. Now I'm sitting there thinking it through. That is the archetype of of the of the the evil female figure in Disney films, as they do have like they are put together and they do have a striking silhouette, and then they often are counteracted with. I mean, Maleficent is counteracted with the three um, fairies. In this, Lady Tremaine is counteracted with the fairy godmother. Yeah, I, now that you mention it, a lot of those figures I can think of always has a female opposite which i guess brings in the other thing about the other thing that's prevalent less so in this film though it's still a holdover from the fairy tale which is the concept of motherhood um which is so which is prevalent both in the how lady tremaine is behaves as a mother to cinderella but also to drizella and anastasia but also the way that cinderella fulfills the mother role for all of the animals um 
and what that tell like because motherhood is such a big deal in the Disney films and the representations of motherhood and the ab- the absence of it the de- like the degradation of what motherhood is um the 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 um the bastardization of it that's such a big thing in it um and mother and like motherhood does seem to be a running a small running theme in this film just kind of bubbling underneath the surface of it and is that like like is that a holdover from like uh, fairy tales that were like read two children who, you know, probably by their mothers? Or is that something that you think Disney heightened in their film? No, I th- I think it's definitely a holdover from fairy tales because, I mean, you have a story like, in lo- in many stories, the, the, the stepmother is more present than the mother. If a parent is dead, it's usually the mother. I mean, in the original Cinderella story, the father's alive. He's not dead. Like, he's there for the whole story. Oh, really? Yeah, so that's a, that's a Disney decision to remove him completely, which I guess in terms of narrative storytelling, ups the stakes for Cinderella because she does she has no possibility of anybody to to save her. But you know, Hansel and Gretel, it's I think it's a stepmother that's the one that sends them off, um, in, that convinces the father to take them into the woods. And um, S- Snow White, it's an evil stepmother. Like it's what is with that trope? Is it like the soiled woman? I think it has less to do with part uh, probably to do with that, but also probably to do with the death of like. That the ideal idealization of motherhood in the Grimm story, it's not a fairy godmother who saves her; it's her mother. It's a tree growing on her mother's grave. Wow! Which I mean, and there's also the thing like with this, the the fairy godmother fulfills the function of a mother in this story. She's there to comfort. She's there to console. She's there to encourage. She's there to offer guidance. Um, to to and to hear. Like the first time we see her. Cinderella is has her head on her lap and she's stroking her hair and that's such a motherly action which is something that you never see otherwise um but then Cinderella also makes clothes for the animals and you know gives them shelter and feeds them as well well and I bet like in the time of fairy tales it was pretty common to not have a mother you know like De- death and childbirth and just death in general <laughs> like probably meant there were a lot of kids without mothers for a kid losing a mum is the most horrifying thing in the world a dad is someone who leaves like in like the heteronormative fairy tale slash 1950s sense the the father is the one that goes to work the mother is the one that stays and helps and takes care of the children if the mother dies then who does that then like like that's a, like would be a massive fear for a child to lose a mother i do remember as a child having like a weird fascination like not in a like in a way where it almost seemed like cool, like with being an orphan, you know, just because there's so many stories about it. I was like, wow, that's awesome. Because you don't really have any idea of what that really is. It just is like all these cool stories of these like spunky kids doing stuff when they're orphans. I mean, Cinderella is one of the many Disney orphans, like so many of the early Disney films. Uh, Disney films in general are about orphans or children who have lost at least one parent. And is that so that they can have, they can be the protagonist of the story and, you know, that then they're, you know, it ups the stakes, they're responsible for their own fate. Yeah, they, they have a lot of uh, power about their, when it comes to their own destiny. I think so. And yeah, I think, I think it's partly that and partly also the stakes of the thing. I mean, with Cinderella, um, because she only has herself to rely on, um, the 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 victory is so much greater but the loss would be so much like that's why when she has her dress ripped apart it's overwhelming for her and the whole film kind of stops because it's like well wh- what does she do now and then when she gets locked in her room at the end it's it's horrifying like sure we know that we know she's going to get out we know she's going to put the slipper on everything's going to be fine but the 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 stakes of it are, have been raised so high because 
she only has herself to rely on. She it's like only she can get herself out of this. Though of course she has these. She has she has rodents and birds to help her. <laughs> True. Why do you think there are like what? Why do you think think there is that trope of you know nature and animals um being connected with the romantic lead? Like because this isn't just in Cinderella; it's in so many of these kinds of narratives. I mean, it shows gentleness, right, and care. It's like this woman is so, uh, yeah, kind-hearted that that animals even can see it, you know, are drawn to them. Yeah, there's something supernatural about that. Like animals sense your goodness mm. and are drawn to you. They're so good. That's what it is. And I mean, the animal stuff in this film is particularly great. Like, you know, by virtue of the fact that you can have at least 40% of the film has nothing to do with Cinderella. It's just Jack and Gus Gus fighting with Lucifer over something. Like, we need to get the beads, we need to get the corn or something. And it's done so well. The physical comedy in the animal fights is is excellent. I was very impressed with it. And I found myself like laughing out loud at some of those moments, but just at like the physical tricks, like um, the one that comes to mind is uh, the button going onto the, onto Lucifer's nose. And then his nose is shaped like a button for a second, just all of those little tricks. And even more so when you get to when, cause you know, you're watching it thinking, what does this have to do with Cinderella's narrative? Like this feels like completely, like it feels like filler, but then it all comes together at the end when it, when you with the best action sequence in the film, which is getting the key up those fucking stairs. And at the last second, that conflict between the mice and Lucifer reaches its climax because now all of a sudden we know what their relationship is. We know the tricks they use with one another, but also Lucifer knows the tricks they use with one another. Um, and so all of a sudden there's actual, the danger is upped because this secondary conflict has, is also coming to a head at the same moment. Um, it's the surprise I have with watching Cinderella is that for how insipid it can be at points, there's not a single moment of waste in it. Like nothing is left hanging in this film. It's like so many cartoon movies, like it's trying to like uh, appeal to as many different ages as it possibly can. And so the animals are an entry point for like very young kids who don't can't invest in like a romance story quite yet. It's like you you invest in the the silliness of the animals and then you get like secretly drip fed the romance, you know. I guess because they become your eyes in the film. I mean, they're they're the view, the mice really in this film are the uh, how we view Cinderella's story because her her victories and her losses are felt by them and they're they're, they're the characters that we view that through. Also because they become emotionally invested in it by making her dress and helping her get ready of a day. They're the ones that are the most aware. They're even more aware of Cinderella's abuse than Cinderella is. Like they, like, you know, when the lead up to making the dress, like Jack just makes it very clear, like, you know, They've got up. There's nothing like that. She can't get out of this. It's hopeless. There's no like they they have a greater awareness of her situation than she does. Yeah, and they're um, secondary characters that you can root for, um, who give us like a, a male counterpart to Cinderella. If like if we stop thinking of them as mice and just kind of look at their character, they're like you know being mice. They're a lower class, but they've got like this scrappy can do energy that we often see like that we would see in someone like Aladdin and they're her protectors and like weirdly because they're little mice they probably only I don't know how long mice live but like they're older than her you know they like have a lot of them have like wisdom you know and like uh, 
an understanding, as you were saying, Daniel, like beyond Cinderella's and they can like help her as like adults and guide her. (laughs) They're also very, like the mice are also very skilled. I mean, they can build a dress for her and they're very, like the, the, the mice have like a practicality, like in, you know, in Snow White, when Snow White's getting the animals to help her clean the house, she's having to teach them how to do everything. But with the mice in Cinderella, it's like, no, we know how to make this. We know how to, we know how these processes work. We know how best to help her. We have a series of skills. We're practically minded, Um, which does make them slightly different in, like the kind of trope, because usually it's you know the 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 figure that nature kind of spins around, which is like this female figure is the one giving instruction and the one giving guidance. In this, they're having to give Cinderella a certain degree of guidance and help. And they're like, I love their like they are so self sufficient. They're like this little um, organized community, and they can get all around the house. They have all these little doors, and then the last like attack scene with Lucifer, they have like all of these different strategies just like ready to go. They're like, get the fort, get the candle. Like they're a very organized group of mice. By the way, Mr. Disney, are there songs in Cinderella? You always have such wonderful scars in all of your pictures. Oh yes, we've got many songs in Cinderella. Uh huh. In fact, right over here, Paula, is a little series of pictures describing one of the songs. Another way in which Walt Disney hoped to replicate the success of Snow White was with the songs written for Cinderella. The songs composed for Snow White had been commercial hits, as had the soundtrack album, and Walt thought that extra revenue could be found by making sure the songs in Cinderella would be equally embraced by the public. Larry Morey and Charles Woolcott were given the task of composing the songs in 1946, but despite writing a number of songs, none of them were used in the final film. Music had come a long way since 1937, and the kind of songs that had charmed back then certainly wouldn't do now. Instead, Walt decided to look outside of the studio and into the world of commercial music to find songwriters who would guarantee him a string of hits. The New York music publishing firm, Tin Pan Alley, had been a major force in American popular music, representing and publishing some of the biggest hits of the early 20th century. In 1947, the Tin Pan Alley songwriting team, Al Hoffman, Mac David and Jerry Livingston, released their hit song, Shababa Shababa, My Bambino Go to Sleep. Walt heard it on the radio, thought it would be a great fit for the fairy godmother, and approached the team to compose the songs for Cinderella. It was the first time composers from outside of the company had been engaged on a project, and they brought with them a new, modern sound that was unlike anything heard in Disney features before. Their lyrics were clever, their rhythms were catchy, and their sound emulated the crooning hits of popular music at the time. The first song they wrote was A Dream Is A Wish Your Heart Makes, and upon hearing it, Walt gave it his ultimate approval. That'll do. David, Hoffman and Livingston were also responsible for bringing singer Irene Woods onto the film. The four had known each other back in New York, and while Woods was in Los Angeles, they asked her if she could help them record the demos for the songs to present to Walt. Woods was happy to oblige, and didn't think anything of the recordings afterwards, but Walt was so enchanted by her voice that he asked to meet her. Woods was offered both the singing and speaking role of Cinderella. I loved Cinderella, and I think he liked that too. She was a spunky girl, uh, even though her life was certainly not the best kind of a life, and she worked very hard. She kept up her spirits. She had a lot of joy and a lot of love for the creatures around her, and uh, took what was handed out to her with a smile, and uh, kept her spirits up, and always, again, uh, believed and had dreams. 
Other actors featured in the film included Verna Felton as the fairy godmother, who had played an elephant in Dumbo and would feature in all of the Disney animated features in the 50s, and Eleanor Audley, whose iconic performance as Lady Tremaine would lead to her equally iconic performance as Maleficent in Sleeping Beauty. Great vocal work also came from unexpected places, with ink and paint artist Lucille Williams lending her voice to the film as the mouse Perla, and Jim McDonald, the new voice of Mickey, providing the voices for Mice, Jacques, and Gus. One of the great musical moments in the film is where Cinderella sings Sing Sweet Nightingale in a three-part harmony with herself. It was Walt that came up with the idea. Uh, he came in at the end of the day when we recorded that song, and uh, he listened to it and he, with his head down again, and he looked up and he said, Eileen, can you sing harmony with yourself? I said, oh, gee, Mr. Disney, I, I don't know, I can't even hum and whistle at the same time. You know, but what did you have in mind? And he said, I can see it. Uh, and at this time, Patti Page had not done that voice layering record that she did, where she did harmony with herself. So Walt was the first one to come up with this idea. And he said, I can see it. And he turned around to the engineer. He said, you know what I mean. He said, we'll put the earphones on her and she'll sing second part harmony. And he said, I see her scrubbing the floor and another bubble comes up and she sings third part harmony and so on and so on. And the engineer sat there and he said, well, if you say so, Walt, we can do it. And we did it. And uh, when we first heard it played back, it was really beautiful because, you know, sisters' voices blend well together. But when the same person is doing all the parts, the blend is unbelievable. And uh, he, by the time all the soap bubbles had come up and the reflections were in all of the soap bubbles around her, it sounded like the Tabernacle Choir. He knew it could be done. To achieve this, they used overdubbing technology invented by musician Les Paul. Ub Iwerks was put in charge of the bubbles to make sure they were perfectly synced to the harmonies. Artists from Ink and Paint used different colours of ink to render them in different shades, giving them the dimensionality needed to hold the various reflections of Cinderella. Even with all the tremendous marriages of music and visuals in Cinderella, including the transformation and the ball, Sing Sweet Nightingale is maybe its most triumphant. I mean, it's, it's the simplest view of romance ever, right? It's like you see someone that you're attracted to and then you marry them and it's great the end like they don't they don't have any conversations they don't like like all they do is dance and sing and then they get married because her her foot fits in a shoe so it's like without any nuance at all like there's zero nuance to their relationship yeah totally and it's totally dependent on um it's totally dependent on this dude being a prince as well and having all of this power and money, and because of that, we assume that Cinderella is going to be fine for the rest of her life. Yeah, and he must be good because he's hot. He's hot and rich, so he must he must be great. If we show this film to a child, what are the conversations we need to have with them about this particular film? Like, what are the what are the uh, what are the lessons that we can we can allow it to impart? But what are the ones that we need to talk about in order to clarify for them? Yeah, it's wild. Like, I mean, I don't have kids, and I don't plan on having kids, but like. I haven't even thought of that. Like what, like showing them old Disney movies that, that like, would I let my kid watch this? I don't know. Like, I feel like I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't let them watch it until I could have a, until they could understand a conversation about like ha, the bullshit in it. You know, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't let them consume it 
like I consumed it from such a young age that they can't even remember or understand any critique of it. And I think, yeah, they do need to understand that it's like a total fantasy an idealized, very old fashioned view of the world that is like, like Cinderella is at, as like the the human characters in Cinderella are as fantastical and ridiculous as the mice, you know, neither are real. It's such a narrow perspective on what happily ever after means for a woman, probably also for a man, uh, and that they would need to understand that, that that ending isn't the only ending at all. In fact, that ending isn't real at all. Like that actually life looks, so different to that and that yeah that 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 a woman's agency goes far beyond hooking yourself up with a good dress also like the whole like we were talking about the whole competition aspect that like there's the ugly bad people and then the pretty nice people like how do you I don't know how do you talk about that with a kid it just seems like like this is the kind of stuff that we're drip fed from so young that confuses the hell out of us, like well into adulthood. So it's actually a pretty dangerous thing to tie up into your child's psyche when they're that young. I mean, it seems so harmless, but I, I can speak to the, the confusion that it gives you like throughout your entire life. Particularly when you then like marry it with the fact of like the concepts of gender um, and sexuality are completely binary in in 1950. Like, you know, the expectation is that a man will marry a woman. I mean, you look at all of the animals and all of them are paired off in, like, male-female groups, except for the boys who are all just friends, um, that, that when you then apply that idea to, you know, tr- like this very, very, very traditional fantasy version of what a relationship is and what falling in love is, heteronormative relationships don't even work like this, but then you open up to in a 21st century context where our understanding of gender and sexuality is so much broader um, and so much more uh, rich and complex that this it becomes even more of a fantasy. I mean, it's, it's, it's in a way, Cinderella kind of sits on its own within these problematic um, princess narratives because all it really, I mean, there are questions around consent um, in um, Snow White and Sleeping Beauty, and there are like you know other issues that come up with other narratives, like you know Stockholm Syndrome in Beauty and the Beast. But this one, it's just this is a fantasy. This is not this is not the way that it necessarily works. Um, and that, as beautiful as it is, and as joyous as a film as it is, yeah, it is about like what are those expectations? Um, how do we? How do we reconcile it? How damaging do you think those expectations can be? I think extraordinarily, like it just confuses you and it takes you a long time to figure out, uh, uh, to value yourself beyond that paradigm, right? And like, because it also is like very focused on image. Like, you know, the good people are like white and thin and blonde and beautiful and can sing. And then like, like, it's very confusing And I think because we consume it when we're so young, it just gets so deep in there that it's hard to really uh, grapple with at any age. And I, I know that like when I was young, my mom was actually very aware of this kind of thing. And I think uh, like before I consumed this kind of stuff, she would like, um, like she gave me my name Morgan because it's like can be any gender 
Um, and she used to dress me like in, in pants and like, I was like a little tomboy, like running around digging in the dirt. And then at some point I rejected that. I was like, no mom, I want to wear frilly dresses. And I, and I decided I hated my name because it could also be a boy's name. And I just wanted to be this like frilly, beautiful girl. And that was not something that my mom ever put on to me. And so I, I know that I got that idea from the culture around me. And this obsession that I had with these princesses came from like being fed them in this fun, child-friendly way, you know? And it's not even the fact that you were fed them. It's that everyone was fed them. This was just the paradigm that we grew up in. So, like, you know, my best friend might have been wearing frilly dresses, so I wanted to wear frilly dresses. Like, it didn't even have to come from within me. It came from all around me. It's so true. And I say like, Oh, maybe don't show your kid that, but how do you not show your kid that when they, they come home and they're like, you know, everyone at my school has seen this. Don't make me the, the outsider. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah. I feel like this narrative is just like so deeply ingrained that as like uh, a 37 year old queer person, I'm only now unsticking myself from this narrative. Like I can feel how it worked on me both in my, like who I thought I should be, like growing up definitely through high school, definitely into my 20s. Like I knew I was queer in my 20s, but I didn't want to look queer. Like I was still quite femme. Well, I thought I was femme anyway. I'm sure if you spoke to my friends, they would have disagreed with me. But I I didn't want to seem gay because that seemed gross to me. Um, and I, I think I think that is tied to this idealization of of what a woman is supposed to be. And I think it's also important. To, like the other thing to think, because of course the question is where does this where does this come from within the Disney arc and within the Disney the the wider Disney narrative? And it's important to think about the fact of like when this film comes out. It's also coming out in the years just after the Second World War, where America is trying to embrace what their values are. This idea of, like, the white picket fence, um, financial security, community security, um, everything going back into a sense of order after the war, where everything is in a state of chaos. And that this film comes along, which may not necessarily have been made with those values in mind, but completely syncs with what it was that America, like America, the American public wanted. It's the reason why Disneyland became so successful was that they just tapped into something that was happening in the culture at that point where everyone wanted stability. And what Snow White and Cinderella offers is stability. It's stability of this is the way relationships work. This is the way gender politics work. Um, if you're good, you're rewarded. If you're bad, you're not. And then, and then it becomes this enormous box office success and this huge cultural phenomenon, which then becomes a way of it reintroduces the narrative back into the public's consciousness. So then it can start to become this thing of it's permeating out into the into the wider um, into the wider culture. This idea of this is the ideal. Because I mean, the next, the next time that Disney does a a, a fairy tale adaptation is ten years later. It's kind of like they've done this, and then the success of it has kind of permeated out into the wider world before they've even realised that that was the thing that people were connecting to. The prevalence of this narrative is kind of shocking when you actually sit there and consider it, and the way that it can be read. And then also the question of like, well, then what do we do with a film like Cinderella now? Because clearly, it's and it's tremendously entertaining, and it's. 
you know, it's a beautiful work of art. And so then it comes down to that question, like, what do we do with it? Um, this kind of leads me to my last question in talking about Cinderella, which is for two people who have such a strong interest in romances, romance on film and television, that kind of stuff, where does the 1950s Disney film Cinderella sit? It sits for me in a place of nostalgia, um, but I guess with the awareness that I have 20 years later from the last time I saw it, I uh, I don't really value it beyond that, like, yeah, beyond that little, uh, the memory of enjoying it as a child. And then I, and I also question that memory. I'm like, oh, did that fuck me up? You know? <laughs> I recognize the artistry and the skill and, and all of that. But I, I think that, um, maybe that artistry was misplaced. Like it's, I think that, I mean, I don't think anyone was purposefully doing anything horrible, but I think that it's, it's a damaging, it's actually a very a stealthily damaging film. For me, it sits as a myth that is greater than the movie actually is because of its all pervasiveness. And in making these theater works, which are about romance tropes that we've been fed, I've referred to this myth so many times without having seen this film since I was a child. But I didn't need to see it because I knew what it was, like, because it's just so all pervasive. So for me, it's like a thing that I need to be aware of and on guard for. Brilliant. That beautiful answer. Beautiful, beautiful answer. Despite his initial burst of enthusiasm, Walt found himself tiring quickly of Cinderella. He had forced every department to cut corners in order to make sure his grand vision made it to the screen, but in the end, all he could see were those cut corners. The film had charm, but not the opulence or ambition of Snow White, and even the qualities he had fallen in love with in Mary Blair's work hadn't translated as well as he would have liked. He had also been distracted by other projects he found far more interesting. He had become obsessed with model trains, personally working on elaborate working models that were set up initially at the studio before redevelopments at his home allowed him to set them up there. Income from Great Britain that had been frozen during the war was also now available, so he had moved live-action film production there to save on costs. For much of the last stretch of Cinderella, Walt was in England overseeing the lavish production of Treasure Island, so directors Clyde Geronimi, Wilfred Jackson and Hamilton Lusk would mail him updates, scripts and storyboards for approval. After two months without a word back from Walt, they decided to continue production. But upon his return, Walt was critical of the work and ordered much of it redone. On October 13, 1949, production was complete on Cinderella. The studio had been gearing up for a big publicity and merchandising campaign, spearheaded by the studio's merchandising executive Kay Kamen, who had joined the studio in the 20s and overseen the licensing of Mickey Mouse merchandise. A few weeks later though, on October 28th, Cayman was killed in a plane crash. Walt took the news hard. Not only had Cayman been a great collaborator, but the two men had become close friends. As Cinderella approached its premiere in February 1950, Walt would occasionally articulate his disappointment in the film. The finished picture is not everything that we wanted it to be, he said to This Week on November 18th, 1949. But today, it is quite a problem, what with costs, labour, etc., to do all the things we would like to do. 
Perhaps he was gearing himself up for the inevitable, that Cinderella would be the film that sunk his studio once and for all. With all the magic at his command, Walt Disney, after six years in the making, brings you his Cinderella, an all-cartoon feature. Cinderella would be the film that saved Walt Disney Productions, becoming an enormous box office hit. The reviews were mostly warm. May Tenney, writing in the Chicago Tribune in February 1950, the film not only is handsome, with imaginative art and glowing colours to bedeck the old fairy tale, but it also is told in a gentle fashion, without the lurid villains which sometimes give little lots nightmares. It is enhanced by a sudden, piquant touch of humour and the music which appeals to young and old. The bulk of the criticism was levelled at Cinderella herself, many finding her underdeveloped and insipid. The public response though was ecstatic, and the film which cost 2.2 million ended its theatrical run having grossed 7.9 million, the biggest profit of any Disney film since Snow White. It also made further profits with merchandising, and almost all of the songs became hits, both individually and as part of the best-selling soundtrack album, which hit number one on the Billboard pop charts. The film's success continued into 1951, with three Oscar nominations and the Golden Bear at the first Berlin International Film Festival. Cinderella became an instant classic, and is still one of the most beloved Disney animated films. In many ways, Cinderella is an improvement on Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. While the earlier film is more lavish, more enchanting, more visually breathtaking, Cinderella succeeds in the dimensionality of its protagonist, and the strength of its more sophisticated characters and storytelling. Even now, watching Cinderella is watching an artistic triumph in motion. Most importantly, the enormous box office success of the film ensured the security of Walt Disney Productions. Their debts had been cleared, their standing in the film community reasserted, and the future of feature animation guaranteed. They had gambled everything on Cinderella, and for the first time in a very long time, that gamble had actually paid off. Do either of you have a favourite Disney animated film? When I was little, my two favourites were uh, 101 Dalmatians and The Aristocats. The Aristocats is not one that anyone's brought up yet. Yeah, I really loved that one. I, I, li I really liked Cats when I was little and it was really adorable. I also loved The Aristocats, but that feels long to say the same thing. But I did love them because I was obsessed with Cats and my name is Cat, So that's why I think I really loved it as a child. But I think I also really liked The Lion King. Really good. I remember seeing it and being like, oh, my God, this animation is so beautiful. It's just a very well done film. Yeah, every time, every time it's, I think you're, I think, the third person to bring up The Lion King as 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 their option, um, which I always find funny because it's probably my least favourite Disney film. One wow. of my least favourite Disney films. But, like, but in the funny thing, and whenever I meant friends, I talk about this podcast with, with friends, they're like, how are you going to handle doing The Lion King? And the more time goes on, the more I'm excited about it because so many people love it and I'm excited to kind of try and work out why it's a film that people love so much because I just don't have any connection with it at all. I mean, it's still a year away, really, before I get to it. But as time goes on, I just find myself being like, I'm really much more fascinated into exactly what it is that people love about that damn film. 
Thank you so much for joining me on this episode to talk about Cinderella. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been a blast. I knew it would be. I knew having you two to talk about this film would be, you were the first people I thought of were talking about this. I was like, there's only two people I want to talk to about this. So thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for joining me and sharing your thoughts um, uh, on this 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 classic film. Thank you. It's been so much fun. Aww, thanks for having us. Despite the success of Cinderella, Walt Disney was growing bored of animation. If anything, the success of the film had proved what he'd always known, that his studio and his artists were the best in the business, and that even with their wings cut, they could still beat out the competition. He needed a new challenge. He tried with live-action filmmaking, but even that was starting to bore him. He was searching for something new, something revolutionary, something that could give him back the thrill he'd had back in 1937. The profits from Cinderella had finally given him the chance to work out what that could be. In the meantime, though, the many feature film projects that had been languishing for over a decade could finally come to fruition, the first of which would be a project they'd been working on for a very, very long time. In that same interview with This Week in November 1949, Walter teased that we were now getting our organisation in such a shape that I think we're going to come out with a real post-war production. It looks unusually good. The production in question would be unlike any they had made before. An adaptation of the greatest work of children's literature ever written, and a project with which they were engaged in a constant wrestling match. It seemed straightforward enough, a young girl falls down a rabbit hole and finds herself in a place where nothing makes sense. But the film would be one of Walt Disney's most frustrating productions, and one of the greatest films they would ever make. On the next episode of Ink and Paint... Everyone has this idea of Alice based on popular culture that's reproduced this image of Alice, so we can find her everywhere. I'm joined by Dr Elizabeth Hale from the University of New England and Anna Mick from the University of Warsaw to talk about the riotous Disney classic Alice in Wonderland. Thanks again to Katrina Cornwall and Morgan Rose for joining me on this episode. You can find out more about their company Riot Stage Youth Theatre at riotstage.com, on Facebook at Riot Stage Youth Theatre, and on Instagram at riot.stage. Be sure to check out the show notes on this episode at inkandpaint.com.au for more information about the making of Cinderella, including concept art and animation sketches, and information about the history of the film on home video. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast. Hit us up with your comments, questions, and even memories of your favourite Disney films, and we'll be sure to share them on our upcoming episodes. We're also starting work on a series of in-betweeners on the creation of Disneyland. So if you have any memories of your visit to the happiest place on Earth, we'd love to include them in the episodes. You can email daniel at inkandpaint.com.au or find me on Twitter at Daniel Lemon. You can also follow Ink and Paint on Twitter and Instagram at InkPaintPod for bonus material and news on upcoming episodes. We release new episodes every fortnight, as well as bonus in-betweeners every now and then. So if you enjoyed the show, please rate, review and subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform. And don't forget to tell your friends. 
Ink and Paint was created, hosted, and written by myself, Daniel Lemon, and produced and edited by Alex Amster. Theme music is composed by Sam Porter. The show artwork is designed by Nicholas Piranakis, with episode illustrations by Lily Meek, and the podcast is released through Switch, maketheswitch.com.au. Join in next time on Ink and Paint to continue our journey through the Disney animated classics. In 1944, Arkeo picked... Arkeo is so hard to say.